You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I have to tell you that I am extremely happy today to be talking to Patty Farris, Patricia Farris, who's a dermatologist in Metairie, Louisiana, which is basically being from New Orleans, where she's been in practice. She's been in practice of dermatology for 35 years. I'd like to be down there in New Orleans with Patty because we would be having some Andouille gumbo and going to Molly's for some from Irish coffee, but we're unfortunately not going to be able to do that today. But, but Patty, it's great to have you here today, and we're going to have a great discussion about some important areas in dermatology. Good to see you. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. Looking forward to it. So, Patty, one of the things I really wanted to ask you about is we have a lot of new people coming into dermatology. And in talking to a lot of the, the residents that are coming out, and even some dermatologists that have been out for, for a little while, they have questions about how they integrate different aspects of dermatology into their practice. And I know you have a lot of experience with this and in integrating cosmeceutical sales in your practice, combining cosmetic dermatology procedures like toxins and fillers with just general medical dermatology, which you're in the trenches doing in private practice. So just some general advice for me because I don't know what to tell these people because I don't do the cosmetic aspects of dermatology. Right. You know, I, I kind of call it doing the dance, Jim. You know, I think when you first get into practice, I, I mean, your roots are primarily in medical dermatology. Even if you've been well-trained in cosmetics, which I felt coming out of the Tulane program that we really were well-trained. But, you know, people are coming to you for dermatologic advice. And I think you need to realize that your medical practice will ultimately mature and that it will feed your cosmetic practice. So the mother who brings in the kid with warts or she brings in the child with acne, ultimately you develop a relationship with that woman. And that person then can become more trusting of you and they will become a cosmetic patient. I think there's a different level of sort of trust that needs to occur in the cosmetic arena. People really need to know you have some experience, that you've been well-trained. They want to see before and after pictures. I mean, it's very, I think there's a higher bar there in terms of level of trust. And I think you get that when you, when you mature a bit and when your practice matures a bit. And they've seen you treat a family member. They've seen how you interact if you're treating your child. But I noticed something very interesting. You said the mother. What about us guys? You know? What about your, your, your male patients that have medical dermatology problems, but there are cosmetics considerations that they have too. And I would imagine that group is growing. Well, you're 100% right. That group is growing. And I would say the same paradigm exists with male patients. Now, usually the mom is bringing the kids in for the derm appointment. So I, I use that example more commonly because usually it's mothers interfacing in that situation. But we have men come in all the time. They have skin cancer, they have whatever. And then they ask questions about cosmetics. And so I, you know, yes, men are interested in cosmetics, but I think anyone doing cosmetics will tell you the vast majority of our patients are still female patients. So how do you balance the medical dermatology aspects of your practice with doing these different cosmetic procedures in terms of, you know, it's hard to do everything and it's hard to be really good at everything. So if it just sort of starting out, do you focus on the medical and you let the cosmetic build or do you set aside certain hours or certain days for the cosmetics? How do you recommend people do that when they're initially integrating? 
I think it really depends on your need. We always had times that we set aside that were either surgical times or cosmetic times, and we could use those for both. They were longer appointments, and we saved those time slots for those two problems, either a surgical procedure or a cosmetic procedure. I think I never wanted to give up medical dermatology. I like medical dermatology. I get jazzed by a new rash or something, so I like that. I have friends who've gotten rid of their medical practices, do nothing but cosmetics. It's not me, but I understand if that's where, you know, that's what jazzes them up, then that's great. But they didn't do that the day they walked out of practice most of the time. And so I think, again, understanding that your medical practice, your your roots are in medical dermatology and your medical practice will build you a cosmetic practice if you want it. You know, even when I went back and did a fellowship after being out a few years in Mo in Mo's surgery, I thought to myself, why would I give up all this education and background for medical dermatology? But I recognize that some people focus on just skin cancer or cosmetics, as you said. So thinking about it from the standpoint of now, patients have questions about the skincare and about cosmeceuticals. That's a very difficult area for a lot of people to wrap their head around. What suggestions do you have for that? And how do you deal with if your office is selling products? Because as a dermatologist, you probably don't want to be thought of as a salesperson, like you're behind a cosmetic counter or something like that. No. So how do you integrate that? I can tell you exactly how you integrate it. First of all, you're if you look at it as a sales opportunity, then you're in trouble. It is an opportunity to educate your patient on what they need to use for their skin. So if you've got a skin cancer patient in front of you, you better tell them to put an antioxidant on and find a sunscreen with DNA repair enzymes. And that's an opportunity for them to purchase with you to purchase wherever they want to purchase it. But I look at skincare dispensing as an educational opportunity. As you know, I've been lecturing on dispensing and topical skincare for years. It's, it's truly my passion in dermatology and I love it. But I always say, unless you are the genius bar of skincare, unless you really understand the space, it's very hard to do it effectively. And so that's one of the challenges is that we have, especially for young derms coming out of residencies, they don't get a lot of education in residency training about topical skincare. It's a huge discipline in and of itself. It's taken me 20 years to learn it. You know, it took yeah. me a long time to learn it. So, you know, there are ways that you can get the job done, but it's not something you're going to pick up probably in your residency program, unfortunately. So how do you depend on if you integrate an esthetician or maybe some of your medical assistants or nurses in the office to help you with that? Because if you're doing it all, you'll, ne you'll never get out of the room. That's often been said, but I actually do all do it all myself. I like to talk about products with patients. I do it when I'm examining a patient for another reason. So if I'm doing a total body skin check on somebody, I might just ask them, you know, what kind of skincare are you using? That's just a perfect time. You know, it's, it's it, you got your dermatoscope out, you're chatting with them. It, it gives them something else to focus on while you're doing the exam. So I'll do my skincare consults a lot of times just like that. And it only takes two or three minutes to they'll tell you what they're using. If you think that they're, you know, which direction they should go might be a different direction. They may need to add a different product. That's a great opportunity to do that. You know, I find doctors tend to get irritated a lot of times by patients who ask about skincare, but we need to own that space. We need to be the experts on topical skincare. And 
look, if you can't do it, hire an esthetician who can. You know, I've sat in a lot of advisory boards with estheticians, and there's a lot of them that know a whole lot about skincare. And I would say at least as much as some of my colleagues who maybe aren't as well versed in it. And an esthetician can be great, you know, they, they if they know especially what they what you like and what types of things you like to dispense. You know, a lot of people do what they call the handoff. They give the patient the entree. Listen, I want my esthetician to talk to you about skincare. You know, you've got rosacea. I think you need some specific products because your skin may be more hypersensitive. And that gives that esthetician the opportunity to come in. I think it's fine to do it either way. I like to do it myself just because I like the subject. But most people do have estheticians that help. And they have to be well coordinated with you because oh, if, if you're, you're giving them some some treatment for acne and they're giving them products that might irritate their skin and instead of being complementary to what you're doing, you everybody really has to be on the same page, the same with Absolutely. your medical assistants. Absolutely. So to residents that are coming out, and you, you've had some people that you've had that, that oh, have been yeah. hired into the practice that you're in, what do you find are the struggles that they have or the challenges they have in then getting into practice and integrating these different areas? What, adv what advice might you give them? I think the biggest struggle for most new physicians coming out is time management. You know, they, they, it's very hard to learn how to move expeditiously through your office and make people happy. And making people happy isn't always about sitting down with them for 30 minutes. I think it's about what you do, not how long you do it. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge I've seen with new physicians is time management. And that's where, you know, you can't stop the middle of your day and run and do a filler if you're busy. I mean, a filler takes longer than treating an acne patient. It's just the way it is. So you have to figure out your time frame and how much time you need to do each procedure. The other thing you don't want to do is you don't want to turn patients off. You know, if you're new and you're coming out and you're not super busy and someone says, gee, I'd love to have some filler and you've got the time to do it, then by all means, go ahead and do that because you want to be accessible and you want to be amenable and, you know, they're excited, they're ready to do it. And you you want to be able to do it. But as you get busier in your practice, you just, you can't break stride like that. You just can't. Yeah. It's like that patient that comes in and they have this big epidermal cyst that you know is going to take time. It's not one of those that easily re gets removed like out. a pilar cyst and you right. stop and now you're behind 45 minutes. You just can't do it. You have to can't schedule things, right? The yeah. other thing I think is learning how to control how much you do in at one time. You know, people come in with lists and they may have a huge list of things and you have to prioritize that list. So it may be the first three things today and then I'm going to see you back and follow up anyway. So I promise you I'm going to address your concerns is what I always tell them. Keep that list in your purse and when you come back, we'll talk about some of the other things, more fun things, the skincare, the this, the that. So you have to prioritize what the patient really is there for. It can be daunting. It's a daunting task when you first start. I remember myself floundering through my office for, for quite some time. Yep, it, it, it's a learning it's a learning curve. You have to you have to pay attention to what I what I realize. The world is not waiting for you. You know, you come out of your residency, you're feeling really really good, but you have to really un understand how to talk to people. But that includes your staff too. Your relationship with your staff. What about if they're joining a group practice and they're coming into a practice where they're they're not the boss per se, right? They're they're they have staff that are assigned to them. They don't necessarily uh, get to choose their staff, and they have to figure out how they're going to get along with these people. Even they know they need those, these people to be listening to them, but they're not the one that signs their paycheck. So it becomes a little bit 
difficult to interact with the office staff. What's your feeling about office staff in that regard? Well, you know, I've been on both sides of that fence, as you know, you know, having run a private practice for over 25 years and then joining a large group, private equity based group. So I've been on both sides. You know, I find that the way you treat your staff goes a very long way in how happy your day is. And I think no, whether you're signing the check or you're not signing the check, you better treat those people with respect. You better have fun with them. I mean, you know, we have a very collegial group in our office. We're all, we're all good friends. And, it, you know, the way you treat your office staff is what's going to determine your happiness. If your office staff is unhappy, mama ain't going to be happy. That's right. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Right. And, you know, I've had employees for a long time. I sold my practice. Those same people are sitting at my front desk. Those same people are sitting at my nursing station as we speak. So that says a lot. But you got to be good to people and they'll be good back to you. But you mentioned something very interesting. You said friends. You You can be friendly with them. But it's you're you're still their boss, so to speak. So oh, how do you separate those two aspects of it? Always because you, you, you if you're overly friendly with one person versus another, then you know that drama starts into it. So oh. what advice do you have in terms of coming in and this this new dermatologist, so this new clinician is now having to figure out that separation F- friend but you're also their boss or friendly yeah. and also their boss. I, I think you said it perfectly friendly and, but you're also their boss. I mean, you want to ask about their kids. You want to know what's going on in their lives. You know, it's nice to interact with them on a personal level, but you know, I think you always have to, you know, keep it to the point where you are the boss. And that's, uh, that's something I've just not ever had a problem with. So I guess maybe I'm lucky that way. But getting involved with the drama, right? Yeah, I don't fraternize excessively to get involved with the drama, but but I li- you know I listen to what's going on in their lives because a lot of times that affects what's going on in my life. Right. You know, if they're having problems, it can definitely affect their work and their tardiness or whatever. You know, the how the whoever watched their kids is not available and they're not getting to work on time. You know, there's things you need to know about so you understand what's going on. And that's a lot easier when you're running a private practice, obviously, than when someone else is running your practice. But but you're 100% right. You can't get too involved. Otherwise, it becomes a problem. So you mentioned something that I, that I think has really become a, a debated issue with regard to this corporate medicine or venture capitalists or whatever, you know, purchasing practices. And that's gotten somewhat of a bad rap as if they're all created equal and and i don't think that's that's true in that regard but i also don't think it's true if you're joining a private practice and those individuals are going to vary also and i used to tell my residents when i when i had the residency program and i used to tell them that the first place you go is not likely to be the place you're going to stay your entire career, regardless of whether it's a big group, an individual private practice. It may seem perfect, but you don't know what it's going to be like until you get there. Uh, and so I think that's true regardless of what type of practice these individuals look at. So what, what advice do you have about that? Because you've been on both sides of that fence. I really have been. And I've seen young doctors go into private practices and go into private equity situations where they're happy and situations where they're unhappy. I think you said it perfectly, Jim. You know, there's good and bad on both sides. And so, you know, I 
I'm very lucky. I've been extremely happy with the private equity group that purchased my practice. I have two young physicians. One was with me when I sold and another one has joined me since. They're excellent. They're very happy. But, you know, again, you can have good and bad on all sides of it. Uh, I feel like private equity gets a little bit of a bad rap. It's easier to criticize, you know, the big bad money guys than it is to p- criticize somebody who's in private practice and might be treating you like abusing people. And, but it happens everywhere, you know? I mean, it, it happens everywhere. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of people very happy in private equity. A lot of young doctors don't want to run practices anymore. Let me tell you, it's way harder to compete today than it was when I started my practice, you know, 25, 30 years ago. It's way harder. So, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of big groups. Consolidation in medicine is happening everywhere in every specialty. And, it, and it's happening because that's what the market's dictating now. It's much easier you know, it's just easier. Your reimbursements are better. Your cost of goods is lower. I mean, it's it's easy. And for young physicians who have families and other obligations, it's I think it's a perfectly acceptable option. And I've seen a lot of people happy in it. What I find is some of my friends that have colleagues or people that I know in dermatology that have done that, it's how much they interfere with how you practice. They get into telling you how to practice, and that would be true regardless of, of anywhere. I, I remember a friend of mine that joined another dermatology practice and didn't realize what they were going to be forced to do in terms of where they send their, their pathology, or what, and they weren't happy with it, but they were being told what to do, and that was in a private practice. That wasn't necessarily in a, in a private equity group, so you you have to be able to practice dermatology the way you want to care for your patients. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. And I also would say that, you know, I know I personally have not experienced any intrusion on my, the medical judgment or anything that I do in my practice from private equity. But I will say that it's, I think it's probably the hardest, quite frankly, on the senior doctors who, who, ultimately sell because you've been running your own show for a very long time and it's hard to switch gears and all of a sudden after you know 30 years you're an employee and you, you know you've got to use the their health insurance and all of us you know everything changes for you you're you're not you're not in charge so i think it's it's difficult people think you know all of the older doctors they sold their practice they cashed in but you know we don't sell our practice and walk away you sell your practice and you work for them just like everybody else works for them. I think it's hard. It's pretty hard to do. I've seen a lot of friends. I, you know me, Jim. I'm pretty easygoing. So I haven't really had too much trouble with the transition. And I, I'm really happy where I am. But I've seen a lot of my friends sell and then they're like, whoa, you know, these guys are telling me what to do. They're taking, you know, they, because they're running your business. You're used to running your business, but all of a sudden they're running your business. It's not your business anymore. Hey, hello, you sold it. Hello. (laughs) It makes me laugh when I hear my friends going, oh my God. I'm like, you sold it. What do you, what do you think? (laughs) You know, and this isn't unique to dermatology. Every business that sells has the same problem, but it's a lot harder when you've been doing it on your own. And again, I see a lot of young doctors coming around looking for private equity or looking for group opportunities because they just don't want the startup. And I don't really blame them at this point in time. Like I said, I think 25, 30 years ago, was just a lot easier. It was different. So Patty, one more question I have for you. If you were thinking back 
to when you were, let's say, getting into the cosmetic aspects of dermatology and doing fillers and toxins, is there something that you look back and say, I wish I had done this differently or approached it differently? It could be how you talk to patients. It could be how you market yourself. You know, is there anything that looking back would be a kernel of advice? Well, I think the one thing is maybe I was a little bit too anxious in the beginning. So hence my discussion about sort of just laying back and letting it come to you rather than just really trying to go out there and go after it. Because I found the patients that ultimately come to you when they trust you, when they know you, are happier patients. They're easier patients to deal with. They're not so difficult. You know, we always say anytime you talk anybody into doing anything, it's never good, especially in the cosmetic arena. You know, let the patient ruminate on it. Let the patient decide who they want to go to. Let the patient shop around and go look online and, you know, do all that stuff that they like to do. Just don't be anxious and, you know, certainly don't be pushy. That would be my best advice because you're not going to get the patient that's going to be happy. You want the people who are happy. You want the people who want you, who are going to be happy with what you're doing, who are comfortable doing it. You know, and I think when you're young, you get a little anxious. You're like, well, let me do this. I, I could do your leg veins. Look, I see you got leg veins. Let me do your leg veins. Everybody does that. You know, you're excited. You're young. You're enthusiastic. Just sit back because it, it will come to you. It will come to you. I, I think that's great advice. So, Patty, next time I get down there, we have to get back to Jazz Fest. It's been a while since we've been to Jazz. You said oh jazz. jazz. It's Fest? funny. You said jazzed up. Jazzed up. Jazzed up. You said jazzed we need, up. We need crab legs. We need our we need our marinated crab claws. We need a frozen Irish coffee, and we need music on the uh, big stage at the Jazz Fest. You got it. We're gonna do we're, it. We're, we're gonna, gonna do, do it, it again. Thanks a lot. It's great. And I really appreciate you helping me out. So now I know what to tell other people about some of these areas that I don't do myself. And I could, I know I could always send them your way. You're always there. That's great. Thanks a lot. Happy to be there for you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.